Mark Twain said that faith is believing what you know ain't true. Richard Dawkins has endorsed the word brights as a noun to characterize people with a naturalistic worldview. It's meant to connotate that he wants those people to be more visible in society, but it sure does seem to connect well with this idea of intelligence being bright, this idea that you wouldn't be bright if you were to believe in God. And growing up, that was my understanding of God. I thought that believing in God was a lot like believing in Santa. Those two were very closely connected in my childhood. In fact, one year, we used to write letters. My brother and I, we'd put them in the chimney to be whisked away by Santa, what we wanted for Christmas. And one year, I wrote on a paper plate, must have been about six or seven. I had just learned to write in cursive. And I wrote on this paper plate, Dear Santa and God, was God ever born? So the philosophical gears were turning early. I think it's the only gift I never got from my parents. They're like, we don't know what to do with that one. Uh, but I, I clearly thought that Santa and God were closely related. I was going to send this letter off through the chimney, and it was going to get to both of them. They were at least roommates. They were very closely linked uh, in my psyche. And I vividly remember the day when I found out that Santa wasn't real. I was the last of my core group of friends to be told that, and I remember my friends telling me, and I remember the emotion, when everyone else knew this, and I didn't know, I remember that emotion of feeling like a fool, of feeling like I had been duped, of feeling silly and irrational, and I didn't want to feel that way again, and so I adopted a critical attitude uh, towards God as well, and that carried me through to the beginning of my years in college. I probably shared this with some of you last year when I was here, but when I was first challenged to read the Bible, I was challenged by two soccer teammates of mine, and I started out by trying to disprove God, and I would cross things out, I'd add things, and I'd actually write BS in the margins wherever I disagreed. And Christians would look over my shoulder and say, Vince, why do you have a BS in the margin of your Bible? And I'd say, oh, that verse makes for a great Bible study. <laughs> hey, that was my starting point. It just all seemed too incredible to believe. A virgin birth, a resurrection from the dead, an immaterial God come down and lived in human form. Dawkins puts it this way, if you want to believe in unicorns or tooth fairies, Thor or Yahweh, the onus is on you to say why you believe in it. The onus is not on the rest of us to say why we do not. And so I began to pursue science rather than God. God was the crazy explanation. Science was the sane, sober, sensible, rational explanation. But as I continued to do that, I was surprised at what I found. I was surprised over time to find that the scientific beliefs were just as crazy as the faith beliefs. They were incredible in both directions. Let me give you a few examples. Listen closely to these. Christian faith makes the incredible claim that God the Father is immaterial. But Let's not forget that science claims that 99.9999999% of the chair that you're sitting on right now is immaterial, give or take. 
Christian faith claims that God is omnipresent, that God can be in more than one place at once. Sounds crazy. But our best quantum physics today suggests that the same particle can be in two different places at once. Whoa. Christian faith claims that the incarnate Jesus has both a divine nature and a human nature. Well, science claims that waves have a particle nature and particles have a wave nature. Faith claims that prayer is action at a distance. Unbelievable that right now in Las Vegas, I could pray for my family in New Jersey, thousands of miles away, and it can have a concrete, tangible impact on them. Unbelievable. Superpower. But let's not forget that science claims that gravity is action at a distance. Faith claims that we can really know God even though there is a lot about him that is far beyond our comprehension. Well, science claims that we can know a lot about our universe even though 95% of it is made of either dark energy or dark matter and we don't know what either of those two things are. I thought science was going to force me to reject the unbelievable nature of faith, but the more I pushed into it, I realized it was precisely science that gave me license to believe the unbelievable. Right now, as you sit in the seat that you're sitting in, you are rotating at 1,000 miles an hour while flying around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour, while you're being hurled as part of a galaxy through the universe at over a million miles an hour, a universe 100 billion light years inside, in size, and so orderly that human life could exist. Life so complex that if you took the DNA strands in your 100 trillion cells and you laid them end to end, you could get to the sun and back 600 times. We live in an unbelievable world. We all believe unbelievable stuff. There is no getting around that. Science and faith are in the same boat in that respect. Sometimes I meet people and they say, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. As if it were a dichotomy. Okay, but they're complementary. There's not a contradiction between a scientific explanation and a faith explanation. Okay, they don't have to be intention. They're just different types of explanations. Science explains how things work. Faith explains if there is a who behind the how. Okay, my good friend, Oxford professor John Lennox, he gives an illustration which I love that really brings this to light. He says, say your Aunt Matilda bakes you a cake. Now a biochemist can explain to you the structure of the proteins and the fats in that cake. A chemist can explain about the elements involved and their bonding. A physicist can detail the behavior of the particles involved, and a mathematician could provide a set of elegant equations to describe that behavior. But it would be very odd to think that any of those explanations show that Aunt Matilda doesn't exist. That would be a very odd response. And then, if you ask why the cake was made, well, now all of the scientists are silent. Okay, now only one person is smiling. Okay, only Aunt Matilda is smiling at this point, because she made the cake. 
And so only she knows why she made the cake. A who behind the how. A who behind the how of the universe opens up the possibility of why. And that, I believe, is the most important question. You can't know who you are unless you know why you are. You can't know who you are unless you know where you've come from and where you're headed. I've been doing interviews for jobs, for people applying to work with us. And when you do interviews, what sorts of questions do you ask? You ask questions about someone's history. You want to know where they've come from. And then at some point in the interview, you turn and you start to ask questions about their future, their future goals, and where they see themselves to be headed. It's that trajectory, understanding where someone's come from and where they're headed, that allows you to understand who they are. Well, if we remove God from our stories, then at the most ultimate level, we ultimately came from nothingness. And then as we look to the future, we're ultimately going to wind up in nothingness. And if that's the case, then what does that say about who we are? All of this thinking, it led me to a very important conclusion. And if you, if you remember one phrase, one sentence from what I say tonight, maybe this would be the one to remember. Criticism without alternative is empty. Okay, if you tell me, Vince, you've got a, you have a terrible phone. You have a really terrible phone. And I say, okay, I'm open to criticism. Which type of phone do you think I should get instead? I ask you for an alternative. And then if you say to me, well, actually, I've never found a phone better than the one you already have. Well, the criticism loses its power, right? It loses weight. You haven't actually made a forceful criticism. If you say, Vince, you have a terrible accent. You have a terrible accent. And I say, okay, well, I'm pretty good at accents, you know. What sort of accent do you think I should have instead? Do you think I should try a Boston accent so I could, you know? <laughs> and then if, but then if you said to me, well, actually, now that I think about it, Vince, the New Jersey accent, I've just, I've never heard an accent more beautiful and eloquent and pleasant to the ears than the New Jersey accent. Well, then your criticism, it would lose force. Right? It would dissolve. You haven't actually made a criticism until you've given an alternative which is better. And my suggestion to you this evening is that God explains a lot and that there's no good alternative to him for that explanation. God explains a lot. He explains that there exists a universe of almost 100 billion light years in size when there could have just been nothing he explains that the universe is so well-ordered and designed that it can produce life. He explains that the laws of nature are so regular and reliable that we can come to understand the world scientifically. Einstein said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. That there exists good and evil and right and wrong as objective categories in life and not just determined by our fickle preferences. That the universe is filled with aesthetic beauty and a sense of the transcendent, that human beings have a purpose and are not just cosmic accidents, and that so many people in so many cultures throughout so many ages have experienced God in so many different sorts of ways and have known deep, deep life transformation and new life 
when they have connected to him in a relational way. God explains. That's just the beginning of a list. God explains a lot. And criticism without alternative is empty. Too often today, people want to criticize God, but not put anything in his place. And when you think about the deepest, most fundamental questions of life, Ravi uses the categories of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where did we come from? Where are we headed? What's the purpose of life? And therefore, how should we live? Christianity offers robust answers to every one of those questions, and criticism without alternative is empty. If you're not going to ask God to answer those questions for you, then who or what is? I think of John 6, when Jesus was saying some difficult things. And many disciples walked away from him, chose not to follow him any longer. And then he turned to Peter and to the twelve, and he said, do you want to walk away also? Okay, and the response was, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? What would possibly be the alternative? Who can possibly compete or compare with the responses that Jesus gives to those questions? When I finally gave Christianity a chance, I was so encouraged to find that the Bible never asks for the blind faith of Mark Twain. It doesn't ask for the blind faith of Richard Dawkins. And I started to read through the Bible, and I saw that it asked me to love God with, yes, my heart and my soul and my strength, but also with my mind. I began to read through, and I started to come across all sorts of words like evidence and reasoning and disputing and debating and convincing and explaining and persuading and even proving. And I read that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians, not for blind faith, but because they examined the scriptures daily to determine if what they were being told was true true. I came across a biblical definition of faith in Hebrews. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Never expected to see that. And I began reasoning to myself that if God made me and if he made me with this mind, then he would want a sincere intellectual search to point in his direction. And ultimately, that's exactly what I found. I found that he loves questions. Sometimes in the church we've done a disservice by implying to people that if they have questions, that means there's something wrong with their faith. I actually think the exact opposite. Okay, any question has a true answer. And as a Christian, I believe all truth is grounded in God. So if you have a question, wonderful. I want to hear that question. That question's a gift, because that question has a true answer, and that truth has to be grounded in the source of all truth. So bring your questions. Welcome people's questions. And the other thing is questions are how you get to know someone. If I want to get to know you, I ask you questions about yourself, and not just the superficial ones. I ask the deep, difficult questions about you, even about the parts of who you are, your history, your character that other people shy away from. Other people say that's too much. That's how you get to know a person. And in Christianity, God is personal. So that's also how you get to know him. Quite to the contrary of questions being at odds with faith, they are actually a condition of deep faith. So don't be scared of your questions. Bring your questions and encourage other people to bring their questions as well. I realized that God, contrary to my previous opinion, is very different than Santa. Did anyone here 
begin believing in Santa after the age of 18. No one. How many people began to believe in Jesus after the age of 18? Praise God. Okay, that's a big difference. And the reason that that's the case is because Santa's not alive. Jesus is alive. He can reach into our life in a living way. Okay, and because Jesus loves our minds. He gave us our minds, and so he wants to speak to our minds. And you can't look into evidence for Santa, but you can investigate the claims of Christianity. And I began to do that, and I began to come across things I never expected to find. One of my former colleagues in Oxford, Richard Swinburne, he's probably the most influential philosopher of religion of the last 60 years. He wrote a book in 2003 on the resurrection of Jesus. He claimed in that book that on the available evidence today, it is 97% probable that Jesus truly, physically, miraculously, bodily rose from the dead. Now, he doesn't say that we need to take that number to be precise. He's making his best estimates at different points in the argument. He likes to work with probability theory. So he's saying, this is my best estimate, just based on the historical evidence. But nonetheless... Someone of his intellectual credibility holding the head post for many years in philosophy of religion at Oxford, making that claim, making it in print, having it published by Oxford University Press, and then ably defending that claim at conferences all around the world, as I've seen him do, speaks to just how strong and robust an intellectual case for the Christian faith God has left us. I love the quote by Chuck Colson, former special counsel to President Nixon, went to jail for his role in Watergate, became a Christian-founded prison fellowship, and he was asked why he believes in the resurrection. Here's what he said. He said, Watergate proved it to me. (laughs) How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Criticism without alternative is empty. This was so significant for me in my coming to faith. I had to figure out what was the best explanation for this huge historical gap between what should have been the movement-ending death of Jesus and then the eruption very shortly thereafter of the greatest movement of all time. Christians bridge that gap with the resurrection. Just criticizing it, just rejecting it, is not good enough because criticism without alternative is empty. So if you're not going to accept that explanation, well then what is it going to be? Could it be legendary development over time? It couldn't be. There wasn't time. Maybe later open your Bibles to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. The first verses of that chapter, it's an early creed. Predates the letter goes back very shortly after Jesus' actual crucifixion. Some say within months, some say within a couple of years. 
Studies show it takes two or three generations for any legendary development, substantial legendary development, to make its way into a text. And here we have a creed within the biblical accounts from just months to a couple of years after that time that's already circulating within the church. And it's a creed that says that more than 500 people were walking around utterly convinced that they had spent time with this man Jesus after he clearly had been killed. And it says most of them are still living. As if to say, if you don't believe me, fine, go out and ask them yourself. Could it have been hallucination? No, it couldn't have. Because we're not talking about just a single experience of an individual hallucination. We're talking about Jesus appearing to both individuals and to groups, even to more than 500 at once, both friends and enemies in different geographical locations over a period of several weeks. You can't explain that complexity of evidence with hallucination. Could it have been a conspiracy? Could the disciples have just made it up? Well, again, no, they couldn't have. Okay, one, there was no central authority there to be able to formulate a unified conspiracy and push it out in all the different directions to wind up the same in all the different biblical texts. But secondly, and more importantly, to what end and for what purpose? People make up a lie when they're getting something for it, when they're gaining something by it. But the disciples were being persecuted for their faith. They were being killed for their faith. What did they have to gain by this conspiracy? If it wasn't true, they would have had no reason to make it up. And Blaise Pascal, he says it very concisely. He says, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. I was looking at all of this evidence and I couldn't find an alternative. And I actually arranged meetings with the two top New Testament professors at the time at Princeton University, neither of them Christians. And I sat down with them, and I opened up that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, and I explained this historical gap that I was trying to fill, and I asked them, I said, from your perspective, how do you fill that gap? And one of them glanced in the direction of a hallucination theory without conviction and didn't have something to defend it when pressed. Like I said, it's a theory that's riddled with problems. The other professor told me that as a historian, he simply wasn't interested in the question. And there seemed to be this assumption that as soon as we begin to talk about a potential miracle, we're no longer talking about history. And I've never been able to understand why he thought he could just make that assumption in the first place rather than pursuing the evidence and being willing to go wherever it led. Christianity is founded on a public historical event that makes it very unique among faith systems. That means it's something that can be investigated with the mind. God gave us that privilege because he made all of us, not just our heart, not just our souls, but our minds as well, and he wants us to pursue him in a holistic way. It isn't just the case that we can respond to God with our hearts. We can respond to him also with our minds. And we don't need to be not bright in order to respond to him, quite to the contrary. And doesn't it fit so well doesn't it fit so well with a God who wants to be known, who wants us to step towards him in relationship, that he would actually come publicly, historically, 
and leave evidence so that we could pursue that and have a conviction about who he is and a confidence as we step towards relationship with him. All of this began to come together in my life and about six to nine months after those teammates had challenged me to read the Bible, I dropped down to my knees in my dorm room. I was alone, but I remember I exclaimed out loud, oh my gosh, this really happened. <laughs> and I felt that way ever since. And I, I gave my life to Jesus right then and right there. And I've always reflected on how incredible it is that I could become a Christian in just that moment. Right then, right there. Because God wasn't asking me, he wasn't Santa Claus. Right? He wasn't asking me to do enough good things so that at the end of the year, maybe he could tally it all up in his book and say, yeah, Vince has done enough good to get the reward of heaven, the reward of relationship with me. No, he wasn't asking me to do anything to climb my way up to him. He was just asking me to accept the fact that he loved me so much that he had already come down to me and done everything that was necessary in order for me to be right with him. I accepted that gift that day in May in 122 uh, Jolene Hall. And since then, I've, I've often asked people, I've often asked people, if, if I were to give you enough evidence for you to believe intellectually that Jesus was who he claimed to be, then would you follow him? And I've always been amazed at the variety of responses. I would think everybody would say, well, yeah, sure. Sure, if you could actually persuade me, then yeah, I would follow him. But that question stops people. And you get a wide range of answers. And many people aren't sure. To their credit, they're often honest about that. It's not just the intellect that keeps us from God. John Paul Sartre, he answered no to that question. No, I wouldn't follow God even if I were given all the evidence I needed to know that he was true. Okay, Nietzsche answered the question no as well. He said, if there were gods, how could I bear not to be a god? Okay, at least he was honest, right? He knew that what kept him from God, he said, what keeps us from God is not our reason, but our tastes. And we want to be our own gods. We want to direct our own lives. It's not that we're too bright to believe. It's that God says, if you seek him with your whole heart, you'll find him. It's a matter of what's in our hearts. I want to circle back to my title uh, a second time, Too Bright to Believe, and share a couple of comments on another way that brightness can get in the way of belief, a different type of brightness. And I was thinking about this as I was flying in to Las Vegas earlier today. Uh, I was flying in during the daytime, but I've flown in at night as well. And when you fly in at night, that's quite an experience, right? Because all those lights hit you. And when they hit you, it, 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 there's nothing else you can look at. You know, anything could happen in the plane and nobody would see it because everyone's out the window looking at this, this lit city, this brightness in the middle of the desert. And everything else seems even darker because of just how bright the city is. Become transfixed on that brightness. Steve Wynn said, Las Vegas is sort of like how God would do it if he had money. <laughs> Drew Carey said, everything and anything you want to do, you can do in Las Vegas. 
Why would we need God if we already have Vegas? Why would we need the light of the world when Las Vegas already has all of the lights that you could ever possibly need? If we're already living in paradise, as good as God can do and with money, then what is the need for Jesus? What is it that he would be saving us from? But now the reality, of course, is that that's not reality. And the reality is that even when we fill our lives with all of the bright lights that we can and with all of the entertainment that we possibly can, even if everything looks great on the outside and it looks so impressive flying in from the sky, okay, what's going on on the inside of many people and many of us so often uh, is not very good. I was looking recently at the, I was reading through the top 1,000 questions that are asked on Google. Fascinating experience. Okay, top 1,000 questions. The vast majority of them are just very trivial. You know, how do I find my IP address? How do I fix this sort of thing? That sort of stuff. Then you get some funny ones. Why are cats scared of cucumber? That was high. I, just, I find it disturbing that so many people are asking that question. I wish I had time to think about that. Um, why is my poop green? Oh, that question is way too high on the list. <laughs> Uh, so I'm, I'm scrolling down and I'm going past these questions. I'm going past questions about my IP address. I'm looking for anything substantive, anything meaningful. What's the first meaningful question I'm going to come across? Number 179. Number 179, how do you kill yourself? Number 194, what happens when you die? Number 381, how can I love myself? learn something about what's on people's hearts and people's minds just reading through that list. I read somewhere that the average child laughs about 150 times per day. I'm starting to see it in Raphael, my son. Average adult, six times. And we're getting more and more questions about suicide at every event that we do. 18 to 19-year-olds, Suicide rose 56% between 2008 and 2017, less than a decade, every 12.3 minutes. I've been journeying with a guy named Dylan, a guy who's asking deep questions about life, considering faith, and I, and I thought he said something insightful. He said, life is like a movie, but the problem is the credits never roll. He said, when you finally work through something, you work through a challenge, you work through a burden, and there's finally resolution, the credits never roll. It just cycles back into the same challenges and the same obstacles and the same frustrations over and over and over again. When you are alone with yourself, without all of the distractions, okay, without all of the, of the bright lights, when you're just alone with yourself, and it's the end of the day, and you're in your room, and you turn out the lights, and you put your head on the pillow. Are you peaceful? Do you have that gift that Jesus talked about, that peace that transcends understanding? If you are, that's wonderful. It's a gift from God, but, but many people aren't. Many of us are spending far too much of our lives worrying, anxious, stressed out, afraid. It's become one of my favorite questions to ask people as I'm getting to know them. I, I ask them, what causes 80% of your stress? 
And the very first time I asked that question of someone, without missing a beat, they responded to me, people like you asking me questions like that. <laughs> I said, well, what about the other 20%? We had a great conversation. But asking that question, I asked that question of a lot of people, it convinced me that most of us are carrying a lot of worry. And I, I recently asked a, a mental health professional, I said, how does this function in our lives? It seems like we're increasingly carrying all of this worry, this stress, this burden, this anxiety. How does it develop? And she said, stress, anxiety, pressure, burden in life, it's like water behind a dam. She said, and it builds up one pound of water pressure at a time. She said, and the problem is eventually it bursts. She said, the problem is it keeps building over time. First, you're younger. You're worried about grades. You're worrying about what college you might get into. You're worrying about popularity. And then you start to get older, right? You get a job. All right, now you're worried about the job. You're worried about, about money. You're worried about paying bills. Okay, maybe, maybe you wind up getting married. Okay, well, now you have the responsibility of a spouse. Well, you haven't lost the responsibility of work and the job. That's still there, but now you have the spouse as well. And, oh, now you have a child. Now you have this huge responsibility of a child, but you also still have the responsibility of the spouse, and you still have the responsibility of the job, and now, now you have a second child. You can't just stop caring for the first child because you had the second child. Now you've got to care for both the children, and it just keeps building like that. And here's the really scary thing that she said to me. She said, the scary thing is that when that pressure behind your dam is just one pound of water pressure less than what you can hold. Everything on the other side looks completely normal. She said, and then when it's just one pound of water pressure more than you can hold, then the dam breaks, and then you have catastrophe. And she said, and the stronger you are, the stronger you think you are, actually, the more dangerous of a place you're in. Because that just means you can hold back that much water before that dam finally breaks and you're left with that catastrophe on the other side. This is real. And I can see by the way people are just responding as I speak it that we're dealing with this. Okay? We, we know this in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. So what are we supposed to do? Okay, for some people, the answer to that is go to Vegas. <laughs> right? For some people, the answer to that is a weekend in Vegas. Right? I'm going to find a way to distract myself, entertain myself. I'm going to find some coping mechanisms, and maybe that works for a brief period of time, but is that going to work ultimately? I don't think it is. I think only one thing helps in this instance, and I think that's handing off your burden to someone else. Interesting, even a very light burden, 10-pound weight, you can hold it initially, but what if you had to hold it for hours? What if you had to hold it for days? Even just a light weight over time weighs you down. We need to hand that burden on to someone else. But the challenge is, who can we hand it to? Can I, can I give my burdens to you? Yeah, we need to do our best to carry each other's burdens. But you've got your own burdens that you're carrying. Am I just going to load more burden on you? I don't know if that's good enough. And what about if I need you in the middle of the night? I don't, I don't know when I'm going to learn that I've lost someone and I need someone right then. Are you going to be there? We don't know. And also, some of the burdens that I need you to carry for me, they're heavy. It's not like I'm just asking you to help me carry the groceries inside. Fine, we can do that. But, you know, what if we're talking about the loss of someone that we love, of a friend committing suicide? What if we're talking about abuse? What if we're talking about that deep, deep anxiety when the dam breaks? Who's going to carry that sort 
of burden. We need somebody to carry that burden. And we're not always able to carry it for ourselves. Who's going to carry it? And I'm so thankful that I think Jesus can carry that burden for us. And why don't we give it to him? You know, because sometimes I think we doubt, could there really be someone who's not only strong enough to carry it, not only able to carry it, but also willing to carry it, right? We start thinking about God more like Santa again, right? We start thinking, I haven't done enough. I haven't been good enough to be worthy of him giving me that gift of, of carrying my burden, right? We, we just, everything in life challenges us not to think in terms of grace, but to think in terms of works. And it's just my favorite word, grace, unmerited love. Now, I always think about one conversation that my wife and I had when we were still dating. She said to me, Vince, I don't deserve you. And I think she was fishing for a few compliments. <laughs> and I responded, no, you don't. <laughs> Not recommended. <laughs> but I didn't stop there. I said, no, you don't. And I don't deserve you either. Isn't it wonderful? You know, another person as your very own. Like, how could anyone ever deserve a gift like that? The best forms of love are not about what we earn or merit or deserve. They're about grace. Right? And I like that type of love. That's the type of love that means you don't always need to be looking over your shoulder or around the corner worrying that someone more worthy of you is going to come along and take the love of the person that you love most. Okay, that's a love that's secure. It's a love that you can stop competing for and you can just enjoy. And of course, the image for me right now is it's the love of that parent that's looking down at a newborn child. That child can't do anything to earn the parent's love. And yet that love could not be more extravagant. Just that smile in the parent's direction and that love just could not be more overflowing if we can get our heads around the fact that that is how we're loved by God, then we can believe that he's not only powerful enough, he's not only capable, but he's actually willing to carry those burdens. And then maybe we can trust him when he makes some beautiful promises to us. And so beautiful for us in this room because I saw the way so many of us were nodding when I was talking about that weight building up behind the dam. What a blessing it is for the scriptures to say, cast all of your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you, and we can cast all of our anxiety on him. And what a blessing it is for Jesus to say, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're carrying that burden today, and you've been trying to deal with it by just looking at the bright lights and trying to distract yourself and finding some ways to cope, that's not going to last long term. You need to cast that burden onto someone else who can carry it, and there's only one person who can carry it forever, and that's the person of Jesus. One more point I want to make. I want to go back to that title one more time, Too Bright to Believe. One more way brightness can be a barrier to belief, and I just felt that this might be for some of us in the room tonight kind of a tangential connection, but I just was really on my heart. And it's that, that, uh, that sense of when you go bright red in the face. You go bright red in the face because there's something embarrassing. There's something 
shameful. Okay, there's something that, that you've wanted to hide and that's kept you from God. I think in, in the church we often talk a lot about Jesus forgiving our sins and we need to. That's absolutely central. But we don't talk as much about Jesus freeing us from shame. And there are two distinct things, overlapping but distinct. You can feel shame for many reasons. It might be something you've done. It might be something that was done to you. It might be something that you had no control over. And you carry it for years. And maybe you know you're forgiven. You know you're forgiven by Jesus and what he's done. But you're still walking around carrying that shame. You still have that dirty feeling. You still have that feeling of, of worthlessness. That feeling that you, that you couldn't be loved. And it is, it's almost like a physical thing. It feels like a stain. And when you think about like a stain on a carpet. And you know, the world tells us time will heal all wounds. But, but it's not the case. It doesn't happen with a stain. It just sets in deeper and deeper. And it's harder and harder the longer it goes to get that stain out. I think there's only one way to deal with that. Something has to transfer. You know, when you have a stain on a carpet and you clean it, it doesn't just magically disappear. You, you, you put some sort of liquid on that stain and you put a cloth on that stain and it's transferred. The stain that was in the carpet gets transferred onto the cloth and it pulls it out and it leaves the carpet clean. When Joe and I were engaged, she, before we got married, uh, she wrote out a list of 40 things that no one knew about her that she wanted me to know before we got married. Beautiful thing to do. Absolutely traumatizing. <laughs> but a beautiful thing to do. And we're working through this list and we're doing all right. We get all the way to number 37. And number 37 is really something that you don't expect. Just four words, but four words you don't expect to hear from your significant other. And these were the four words, I am a Trekkie. <laughs> Joe loves Star Trek. And I know it's a very trivial thing, but she put it on the list because she felt sort of embarrassed to share that with me. Okay, she had gotten, gotten made fun of a bit as a youngster because she inherited this love of Star Trek from her older brother. And not many people know this about Joe except for the fact that I'm now preaching about it. So. <laughs> and, and, but she shared it with me like she had something to be ashamed of. Um, she also shared it to me because there was a new Star Trek movie in the theaters and she had to share it so that I would take her to see the Star Trek movie. One thing more embarrassing than being a Star Trek fan is having to go see the Star Trek movie by yourself. So she shared with me, I am a Trekkie. We meet at the movies the next day. And when Joe shows up, I'm wearing, maybe it was a couple days later, when Joe shows up, I'm wearing a t-shirt of Mr. Spock's face. And it says, live long and prosper. And I'm holding over my head this massive poster of Star Trek, which says, to boldly go where no man has gone before. <laughs> and I thought it was just a fun thing to do. But as Joe approached me, she started to cry. She had tears. And, and, and then she came, came up to me and she just, she just wrapped her arms around me for the biggest hug. And I realized in that moment that for me to literally wear her embarrassment, I somehow freed her from having to be embarrassed about it. And I said to her, I said, I'll never be ashamed of you. And so you never need to be ashamed of yourself. 
And God used that experience for us. I know in some ways it's just a trivial thing about Star Trek, but God used that in our lives to teach us something very significant about himself. Okay, yes, Jesus died for our sins, but he also died for our shame. And when Jesus, naked and vulnerable on that cross, hung there and was mocked and was spat on and was exposed and was abused, he took on himself every time that we've been mocked every time that we've been shamed, every time that we've been exposed, overlooked, every time we've failed, every time that we've been abused. He took any shame that we've been carrying around and he took it onto himself. And when Jesus came down into a human flesh and took on a human nature, he literally clothed himself in all of it. And because of that, We don't need to carry it anymore. That transfer took place, and that's transferred from us, and it's transferred onto him. And in place of that shame, we get some amazing biblical promises, and just listen to these words. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance, and everlasting joy will be yours. Tonight's question, are we too bright to believe? And for some of us, here tonight, we, we may have felt walking in like we were too bright to believe in that intellectual sense. I had a question, a question that's been hidden for a long time and we've been afraid to ask it, afraid to trust God that he can respond to it. For some of us, we've been too bright to fully trust Jesus because we've been carrying those burdens that have been building up year after year, one after another, and instead of casting them onto him, we've just been looking for distractions. We've been looking for the bright lights. We've been looking for some coping mechanism, and we know it can't last for much longer. And for some of us, it's that, it's that third piece. Okay, we've had that metaphorical brightness in the cheeks. We've had that embarrassment. We've been carrying around that shame. And maybe intellectually we know that Jesus has forgiven us, but we've still been walking around with a stain. And we need to know that that stain that we're wearing, Jesus came and he put on our human flesh, our human nature. He made that transfer. He took that on himself. And in turn, he says, you can clothe yourself in Christ. He took our stained clothes and he gives us his new glorious ones. Why don't we just stand as, as I come to a close here. And as we're standing in this moment, I want to offer an opportunity to respond. Okay. These are just three, three encouragements, three challenges, but I sense tonight that they're specifically for people in the room. And as we've gone through those three, it may be that it's a different one for each person in the room. But if you know that God's speaking to you in your heart, not just because of the words that I said tonight, but because by his Holy Spirit, he's saying that you need to respond to one of those three areas, I'm going to invite people uh, to come forward.
I'm going to invite people to just stand here at the front. I'll have an opportunity um, to pray for all of you. And there's nothing magical about coming forward. God's not going to necessarily bless you more because you come forward. But I think there's something significant, something significant about responding to Jesus when he's speaking to us in a holistic way, in the same way that he wants us to love him with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind. There's something significant about not just responding abstractly, but responding concretely and physically. In fact, the same way that he responded to us. Uh, He did not come and respond to us in just an abstract way from afar, on a far-off, distant, heavenly throne. He came and he got involved in life with us. He responded in the most physical and vulnerable way that he could. And so that's an invitation I want to make to you all tonight. If you need to come and just lay before Jesus an intellectual doubt or question, then I'd like you to come forward. You can come forward now. I'll just stand and wait. If you need someone in the aisle to just move out of the way so that you can, you can come forward, just ask someone to move out of the way. And then I want people on that second response. And I can just see on people's faces, thank you, please come forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Feel free to come forward as I'm speaking. Whenever God prompts you, come forward. Don't need, don't need to wait for any pause. And that second one, I sense that's one of the most significant ones tonight, that pressure that's building. And you know it's been building for years. And you haven't been casting it onto Jesus because it just feels heavier and heavier. And you know tonight you need to cast that burden off before that dam breaks. I invite you to come forward. Please come forward and receive prayer for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Keep coming. That's great. That's good. And then there's that, that third invitation for people who've been walking around with shame. Thank you. Thank you. You may know the forgiveness of Jesus. You may not know the forgiveness of Jesus, but you know that you've been walking around with shame in your life. There's something that you haven't received that freedom from. And you've been carrying it, and you know that you need to let Jesus carry that stain. You know that transfer needs to take place. And you want to come forward and say, Jesus, thank you. I want to say thank you that I don't need to live with that shame. And you say that anyone who believes in you will never be put to shame. And tonight, you want to just not know that just intellectually, but you want to feel deep in your spirit that you will never be put to shame because Jesus was shamed for you. We'll just wait, just one more minute. People are still coming. Thank you, brothers. It's a beautiful sight here with people holding hands down the front. 
I'm going to begin to pray, and as I pray, if God is prompting you, you just keep coming as I pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you that you're here with us in this room. And Lord, I thank you for each one of my brothers and sisters standing before you. I love that, Lord, they're standing here with arms linked, with hands held. Lord, knowing that they do this as part of your body. They do this as part of your community and part of your family. Lord, that you call them sons and daughters. Lord, that you say that they're no longer just servants, but you call them friends. And God, right now as they stand here, I pray that they would know in the deepest part of their hearts who you are and what you have done for them and that the promises that you have made are true in their life. And Lord, I thank you that one of those promises is that they can be renewed by the transforming of their mind. And I pray for each person that's walked forward tonight with an intellectual question, an intellectual doubt. God, I thank you that you are bigger than that question. You are bigger than that doubt. You are not afraid of it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would cast out all fear and give peace in the heart and in the mind of each one that's bringing a question before you. Lord, I pray for those who are carrying burdens. I pray for those for whom the weight has been building over months and over years and they have tried everything and the weight just keeps building. Lord, I pray even right now as we speak to you by your Holy Spirit, would there be a lightness or would you break something or would you come and take that weight off of the shoulders. And would, some, would these people walk in that peace that transcends understanding? Lord, thank you that your burden is light. That your yoke, Lord, is light. That your burden is easy, Lord. We thank you. And Lord, I pray for any in the room who are carrying shame tonight. Lord, we simply cannot have that because, Lord, you came to defeat that and you did defeat that and you said you did everything necessary. And, Lord, we just proclaim, every one of us in the room tonight proclaims and acknowledges that you did enough. You did enough to take all of our shame, to take that which was crimson red and to make it white as snow. And, Lord, for any that don't feel that right now, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would bring relief. By your Holy Spirit, you would make that transfer. And those who have known shame would know just how loved they are. Those who have known shame would know that there is nothing that you would not do to come beside them and to step into their shame and to take it off of them and to wear it yourself. Lord, as they give that to you, I pray that you would give them new clothing. You would give them your clothing, that they would be clothed in you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray even tonight as we walk out of this place, that we would all walk out changed, Lord, that this would be the beginning of the revival. Lord, each thing that's happening in a heart and mind right now, that it wouldn't stay where it is at the front of this room, but it would go out into the rest of this room and so far beyond these walls into this city of Las Vegas and beyond. Jesus, you, you rose from the dead. And Lord, you've given that same spirit to dwell in our hearts, the same spirit that rose you from the dead. And so it's with such confidence that we make these requests before you tonight. 
And we ask by your spirit, Lord, that we would have faith, that we would have confidence, Lord, and that it would be the delight of our heart to respond to your love for us with overflowing love for you. Lord, we trust you for that. In the name of Jesus.